You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. In 1736, the English Parliament repealed the century-old Witchcraft Act on the assumption that magic, sorcery, witchcraft, and other methods of accessing the supernatural simply weren't real. New acts at the beginning of the 19th century penalized those who pretended to be able to use these forces as frauds and tricksters. By the 1820s, the crime of casting spells or fortune-telling, especially for money, fell under the Act Against Vagrancy, alongside such offenses as obscene exposure, public gambling, and carrying a weapon with intent to commit a felony. Despite these efforts, astrology, tarot, and other methods of divination persisted through the Victorian era, even increasing in popularity thanks to the spiritualist movement and growing interest in the occult. But while astrology and tarot continued to meet with skepticism and scorn in the 20th century, the art of chiromancy, or palm reading, enjoyed a renaissance in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as a new tool in the science of psychology. Today, we explore the history of palm reading in modern Europe. The art of chiromancy, of observing the shape and features of someone's hand in order to read their character or their future, is ancient. Records indicate that palmistry was practiced across the Eurasian landscape, in places as diverse as India, Nepal, Tibet, China, Persia, Sumeria, Canaan, and Babylonia. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle described human hands in his History of Animals, writing, The inner part of the hand is termed the palm, and is fleshy and divided by joints or lines. In the case of long-lived people, by one or two extending right across, in the case of the short-lived, by two not so extending. While classical texts mentioning chiromancy were preserved in the Islamic world, similar texts would not appear in medieval Europe until the 13th century, when increased exchange across the Mediterranean allowed for the translation of texts from Arabic into Latin. These texts usually describe the notable features of a hand, such as size, shape, the number and appearance of lines and other markings, and assign characteristics. One such text says that a large hand sometimes comes from labor, as in the case of a carpenter, sometimes from nature. When it's because of large bones and muscles, its owner is strong and robust, but not of a lively intellect. If it is large from fleshiness, its owner is luxurious and naturally an excessive drinker. If one has big hands and fingers sharp at their ends, he is lustful and false. If the fingers are broad, he is faithful and writes well. If man or woman has a broad table in the hand and thin fingers, such a one is good at handiwork and well-disposed for playing harp or organ. Those whose hands are neither too large nor too small are more normal. A man with small hands is womanly and deceptive, vindictive and unstable. 
He may love profusely, but it soon turns to hate, and such a one is never to be trusted. In the case of man or woman, the hatred is as vehement as a serpent. But women naturally have small hands, unless from work. If their hands are excessively small, their wombs are narrow at both ends, and they do not seek a man unless one much beloved. One with small hands is weak and timid in either sex. The descriptions are general, but they assign certain characteristics and even predict the love lives of those whose hands match the description. By the 15th century, texts began to assign more sophisticated destinies to certain markings than Aristotle's prediction of longevity or medieval authors' foretelling of someone's love life. These texts also tie chiromancy to astrology, another tool for divination that enjoyed increasing popularity in late medieval and early modern Europe. By the 16th and 17th centuries, however, the practice of palmistry, like astrology, tarot, and other forbidden arts, became increasingly associated with witchcraft, and practitioners risked capital punishment. Its practice waned with the upheaval of the early modern witch trials and the Enlightenment, but, like many other practices associated with the occult, it emerged again in the mid-19th century. The revival of palmistry in Europe is most often credited with Captain Casimir Stanislav Darpentny and the publication of his book, La Chironomie, in 1839. Renewed interest in the practice spread abroad, eventually sparking the curiosity of some of the biggest celebrities of the era, including Mark Twain, Oscar Wilde, and Thomas Edison. As its popularity grew, some scholars attempted to establish a scientific basis for palmistry. Among these was the modern polymath Edward Heron Allen. Heron Allen worked as a solicitor in London and served in the Directorate of Military Intelligence during World War I. He had a wide range of interests and published on a wide variety of topics, including Persian literature, marine zoology, meteorology, heraldry, violin making, Buddhism, and, of course, palmistry. As a celebrated 19th century palm reader, Heron Allen presented it as a cornerstone of modern science. He is, in fact, one of the figures credited with introducing palmistry into the modern era and making it, as one newspaper remarked, a kind of fashionable craze. In 1883, he published Chiromancy, or The Science of Palmistry, which attempted to revive palm reading's reputation. Two years later, in 1885, he published A Complete Practical Handbook of the Twin Sciences of Chironomy and Chiromancy, by means whereof the past, the present, and the future may be read in the formations of the hands. The New York Times wrote, It is through him and his books that all London society has so suddenly taken up this fad, so that wherever you go, young ladies demand to see what kind of a line of life your hand reveals, and if its wrinkles mask some ghastly secret. As his 1885 book reveals, in order to distance his modern scientific approach from the fraudulent palm readers of the past, Heron Allen preferred to use Greek terminology, calling his practice of divining the future by the lines of the hands chiromancy rather than palmistry or palm reading. 
In addition, he borrowed from the growing interest in using physiognomy to determine an individual's character and proclivities, to promote the science of chironomy, studying the shape of the hand for insight, and referenced chirosophy, wisdom gleaned from the observation of the hand. By 1886, Heron Allen had become the toast of British and American society, reading the palms of various luminaries, including playwright and critic Bernard Shaw and playwright and novelist Oscar Wilde. Heron Allen's friendship with Wilde is documented in letters in which Wilde greets him as my dear astrologer. Heron Allen even diagrammed Wilde's hand to be preserved in an album of famous hands, providing a description that reads, The hand of Oscar Wilde is also peculiar. It is very large and soft. The size indicates a great love of detail and a keen analytical power. The line of the head, the first cross below the base of the fingers, is very strongly marked, showing extraordinary brain power and profound scholarship. In England, there's hardly another so profound a scholar as Oscar Wilde. The small lines under the little finger evidence his great power of expression. Perhaps as a tribute, Oscar Wilde put palmistry in the middle of a murder mystery, Lord Arthur Savile's Crime, a story of chiromancy, published in 1887. As is common in Wilde's plays and stories, the characters are from London's upper crust. The guests at Lady Windermere's party include the young and handsome Lord Arthur Savile and a professional palm reader. Lady Windermere summons her chiromantist, telling another guest, I cannot live without him at present. He tells me I have a pure psychic hand, and that if my thumb had been the least little bit shorter, I would have been a confirmed pessimist and gone into a convent. The story unfolds as the chiromantist goes around the room, reading the palm of each guest and describing their respective characters and fates. Soon, the crowd grows uncomfortable with the public reading, especially, quote, when he told poor Lady Farmer right out before everyone that she did not care a bit for music, but was extremely fond of musicians. It was generally felt that chiromancy was a most dangerous science. The crux of the plot comes when Lord Arthur Savile steps forward. The chiromantist, examining Lord Arthur's palm, refuses to say out loud what he sees there. We get no description of the hand as we do with the other guests. Lord Arthur enters a reverie, wondering what could be so terrible about the future written in his palm. As Wilde writes, How mad and monstrous it all seemed. Could it be that written on his hand in characters that he could not read himself but that another could decipher was some fearful secret of sin, some blood-red sign of crime? Was there no escape possible? Were we no better than chessmen moved by an unseen power, vessels the potter fashions at his fancy for honor or for shame? His reason revolted against it, and yet he felt that some tragedy was hanging over him and that he had been suddenly called upon to bear an intolerable burden. Lord Arthur Savile becomes convinced that he will commit a murder in future, that this must be what the palm reader saw. In a comic reversal of classical Greek tragedy, Lord Arthur doesn't try to avert his fate. Instead, he embraces it, 
and the rest of the story follows his misadventures as he tries to figure out how to fulfill his destiny before getting married. Wilde sent a copy of his story to Heron Allen, and their friendship continued. When Wilde published The Picture of Dorian Gray in Lippincott's monthly magazine in July 1890, the same issue featured Heron Allen's latest essay, The Chiromancy of Today, The Evolution of an Occult Science. By the early 20th century, palm reading had begun to meet with broad skepticism, as many tied it to psychic prediction, the occult, and spiritualism, and others began to view it merely as a fad that had come and gone. This changed, however, when the respected psychologist Carl Jung met Julius Philip Speer in the late 1920s. Speer had learned about palm reading in 1905 while attending a lecture given by a neurologist who used it as a diagnostic tool. Afterward, Speer began studying palm reading and practicing it as a hobby, all while continuing to study psychology, including the theories of Sigmund Freud, Alfred Adler, and Jung. Speer and his wife had traveled to Zurich in order to take a course with Jung. While there, he discussed the art of palm reading and stated that he had discovered certain connections between the palm and the mind. That is, he claimed to be able to predict the mental and physical well-being of patients based on the features of their hands. To test this theory, Jung arranged for Speer to offer a demonstration. He was shown a series of plaster casts of children's hands, after which he diagnosed them with traits such as imbecility and severe criminal disposition. After announcing a series of mental ills associated with these casts, Speer asked whose hands he was examining. It was revealed that these were the hands of boys housed in the neighboring psychiatric ward. When he was likewise tested by diagnosing mental illness in adult hands, half his diagnoses agreed with those offered by the doctors. However, upon examining the diagnoses Speer offered, the doctors decided that the difference was explicable due to a variety of factors and it was possible for everyone to be right. To further legitimize palm reading as a scientific and diagnostic tool and distance it from its mystical and spiritualist roots, Speer refused to use it for the purpose of divination or prediction. Instead, he leaned heavily into its psychological applications. He created diagrams mapping the hand using contemporary psychological terms, distinguishing the conscious from the unconscious mind and biological characteristics from psychological. Wanting to further separate his own practice from chiromancy, Speer gave it a new name, psychochirology. By 1929, Speer had begun to lecture on psychochirology to the intelligentsia of Weimar-era Berlin, earning attention from newspapers. His practice grew, and he was invited to give more public and private talks, interviews, and private sessions. Speer met and began to socialize with a few of Jung's students and followers. His fame grew even more widely, and he gained a reputation as an expert on physiological and psychological diagnosis through hand-reading. All was going well. That is, until 1933. As Adolf Hitler rose to power in Germany, many of Speer's Jewish students fled and moved abroad, 
Speer, also Jewish, attempted to leave but was unsuccessful. During this time, he corresponded frequently with Jung, who wrote Speer letters of recommendation as he had done for other Jews seeking to leave Germany. Initially, Speer applied to Switzerland, where he first met Jung and where he had traveled many times, but to no avail. He then attempted to emigrate to England, but again, he was refused entry. Finally, in 1939, he was able to emigrate to the Netherlands, settling in Amsterdam. When, in 1940, Speer attempted to move from the Netherlands to the United States, Jung provided a recommendation once more, writing, Although his method is intuitive to a great extent, it is based upon great practical experience. As this experience can be rationally explained, the method is quite teachable. Owing to its psychological value, Mr. Spears' chirology could be of the greatest help to any psychologist. It is a most important contribution to the research on human character in general. Despite the recommendation of such a celebrated figure, Speer was denied entry to the U.S. He turned to writing, attempting to publish his German language, The Hands of Children, an Introduction to Psychochirology, but it was refused by every German publisher, thanks to an anticipated ban on books by Jewish authors in Nazi Germany. He resumed offering private lessons in Amsterdam. That we know of Speer at all is largely thanks to his most famous student during this time, Esther Hillesum, called Eddie. Hillesum kept an extensive collection of private diaries, letters, and notes of her experiences in the early years of World War II. She also had a remarkably complex relationship with Speer, who acted as her therapist, her friend, her teacher, and, eventually, her lover, even though he was twice her age and engaged to another woman. The popularity of Hillesum's work renewed interest in Speer, and a Dutch-language translation of his book, which featured a preface and endorsement by Carl Jung, went some way toward enhancing the faltering image of palm reading. Palmistry is widely viewed in the West as pseudoscience or superstition in the later 20th and 21st centuries, there are still some who see it as a valuable tool. Julius Speer was ahead of his time in linking a traditional method of divination to modern psychology. The use of palmistry, tarot, astrology, and other traditional spiritual tools as methods to gain psychological insight is one of the cornerstones of the 20th century's New Age movement. Carl Jung's work in particular has deeply influenced New Age understandings of psychological and spiritual well-being. At the heart of both Edward Heron Allen's chiromancy and Julius Speer's psychochirology was the motto, Know Thyself. Just as the practice of divination helps some feel a sense of control by predicting the future in an uncertain and dangerous world, the psychological exploration of the self helps many to feel as though they have more control over their own destinies. In the modern world, the ancient tools of occult fortune-telling have become the tools of self-discovery. 
In his 1885 Manual of Chirosophy, Heron Allen hints at this modern usage of palmistry as a tool for insight, writing, I do not deny that there is a painful side to the science, that the knowledge which we obtain is often terrible and saddening, betraying the faults and the misfortunes of our friends as well as our own, and often dissipating our most fondly cherished illusions. But who dares to deny the inestimable value of the science? Of course, as always, Oscar Wilde may have had the last laugh. As Lady Windermere comments in Lord Arthur Savile's Crime, I think everyone should have their hands told once a month so as to know what not to do. Of course, one does it all the same, but it is so pleasant to be warned. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen, and please spread the word by rating and reviewing Enchanted on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by me, with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com, or follow on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast, and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. As always, to learn more and check out the sources for each episode, visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening, and stay enchanted. <laughs>